Oh no 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 no! Don't install new version. No <laughs> no, never that. <laughs> Your eyes got so big. <laughs> but terror. Roads are golden. Connected to USB microphones. Yep. yep All yep. is good in the world. I think so. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Stephanie Carey. And I'm Chris Toomey. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So hey Chris, how's your week going? It is going well. Yeah, I had a a fun thing that I was working on actually a a week or two back, but I figured I would share it around some sidekick jobs and trying to actually reduce some of the load on the system. Uh, So this is part of some of the ongoing performance work that I was doing on the system that I was working on. And as I was sort of moving through all of the different highest ranked things on Scout, which is the tool that we're using to monitor jobs and throughput and things like that, I'd done most of the web. So like the web request stuff, there's N plus ones in this thing, go clean that up. And eventually I'd gone through that whole list and I started looking over at the background jobs. And there were a set of different background jobs that were actually running very regularly and had long run times and putting significant load on the database. So when I looked at them, there are these identification jobs. So we use a couple of different analytics metrics type services in the background. And whenever something about a user changes, we want to inform that other system, those other systems of the updates to the user. So the user is now a subscriber or they're not. This is the most recent thing that they worked on, yada, 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 all of these details about a user. Uh, But it turns out they are kind of costly to compute because we're basically aggregating large counts across some of the bigger like event tables within our system. And basically, there's just a bunch of effort that goes into them. And because there are three of them, every time a user changes, we now have to do this work essentially in triplicate. And what I noticed was they were happening like a lot, a lot, more than I expected. And so what I ended up doing was instrumenting the sidekick jobs to log when they were happening. Sidekick actually has some nice logging functionality. So I was able to add an additional logging line that said, running the sidekick job with these args, et cetera, et cetera. And I was able to see that we actually were doing duplicate and even triplicate work in some cases. And I believe my best understanding of what was going on there is the system was updating a user, but then there were callbacks that were also saving the user. And the identification jobs were in other callbacks. So we had sort of a nested callback situation that was causing a lot of load in terms of these background jobs. So I'll pause there because I've now I've now given the context. Now we'll wait for the big reveal. But any questions or anything about that stand out so far? Yeah, that sounds hairy in the sense that you've got these callbacks that are then triggering all of these jobs. So no, I'm good. Carry on. Cool. Uh, I've slowly, as an aside with the callbacks, um, because that's not my preferred way of doing a lot of things, I've slowly been trying to unwind those where I'm working on an individual piece. But I try to avoid the big sort of sweeping philosophical refactors wherever possible. So like, I don't like callbacks. I'm going to change every callback in the system and introduce something else. I struggle to find that to be valuable work or when I've done that sort of thing in the past, when I was more go off on an adventure of refactoring, I find that I'll break things and then you lose trust. And I I just found that that's not the best thing. And in general, I like to do the work when I'm in context, like I'm working on the user right now. And you know what, this callback is causing me trouble. So I'm going to change just this one right now. But anyway, so I have been doing some of that work gradually, but this didn't feel like the time to fundamentally change all of those. So what I was able to do at the end of the day was add in a configuration for unique jobs in Sidekick. I marked these jobs as being unique while they're in queued and while they're executing. 
And then I deferred the enqueuing. So I'd say instead of immediately enqueuing this background job, enqueue it for two minutes in the future. And because of the unique job functionality, if it already had that job enqueued, then it would just drop the next one, drop it in a good way, to be clear. So it would not enqueue a subsequent additional identify call. It would just say, oh, we've already got one on the queue. Cool. That'll happen when it happens. And we're good to go. And what was fun was I did some quick calculations based on the change, the average runtime of one of these jobs times the amount that they were running. I ended up saving 24 hours of computation time per day, which was a funny, weird, specific number. I was like, I feel like I may be doing the math wrong, but I think I'm saving 24 compute hours per day by doing this deduplication. That's amazing. I love that you took the time to calculate and figure out how many hours that you were saving because that feels like such a nice win to then be able to communicate out to others as well as to the improvement that you've made. I'm curious when you talked about being able to make the jobs unique so it could check to see if the same job was already running. Is that scoped to per user? So if we have two different users, each user has been saved. So two different jobs get queued. One job goes off to the races and is running. The second job sees that the first one is running and then just waits. I think you can actually configure how it determines the uniqueness, but the default version is unique based on the params. So it's like identify user in amplitude and then the user ID is the parameter there. And so it'll be unique per that user. That's so cool. Uh, I didn't know you could do that with Sidekick, but that seems incredibly handy. So Sidekick has a couple different levels. There's the regular Sidekick, and then there's Pro, and then there's Enterprise, I want to say. And I believe this is a feature of either Pro or Enterprise. But there's also some community gems out there that replicate some of this functionality, which I always find that kind of interesting that there are folks providing similar functionality. There's sort of an ecosystem that exists around Sidekick, but also there are the higher cost tiers or the the non-free tiers for Sidekick. Always intrigued by the business model of Sidekick, as well as the interesting functionality that comes along. Because they've managed to like create software that they can charge for and it's doing so well? Or what do you mean by you're intrigued by it? Yeah, that intersection of Sidekick is truly open source and it's available and people are able to run with it or read the source code and understand it and then build things based on that. And so all the the wonderful benefits that happen from open source. But at the same time, it is an economically viable project that has, as far as I understand it, been the primary income for the creator for many, many years. Mike Parham is uh, his name. And that model of finding ways to keep open source sort of true to its roots, but also be economically viable is one of those perma questions in the back of my head. How do we how do we do this as a society and particularly as a developer community? But yeah, just a fun example. Yeah, makes sense. That resonates with me. Like you said, that sort of intersection of how can we make it open source, but still make the monies from this code that we are investing all of our time into? We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash bikeshed, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. So give it a try, and thanks again to Scout for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed. 
But yeah, so that was a, a fun adventure, sort of dipping into a couple different layers. But uh, in the end, I was able to save one day every day. Uh, so, you know, that was a good thing to be able to write home about. But yeah, what's uh, what's been up with you? How's your week going? My week's been going pretty great. I took a bit of downtime after running the first cohort through the RSpec training, decided to take a couple days off just to kind of regroup because that was a bit of a sprint process and where we were getting all of the content ready in time. And lately, I have picked up a new book that I'm very excited to read and then also share. So a little while back, uh, we can also include a link to it in the show notes because I'm pretty sure we talked about it on the show. I read a book called The Cuckoo's Egg, Tracking a Spy Through the Maze of Computer Espionage, written by Cliff Stoll, and it was really good. And I was really excited to find a book that is nonfiction about computers that could teach me something new about the history of computers that I'm not familiar with, but also still really engaging So I started looking for another book and I tweeted something on Twitter asking people for recommendations. And the one that I have picked to read right now is called The Soul of a New Machine. It's written by Tracy Kidder and it's a nonfiction account of a team, essentially like the underdog team of engineers who build a state of the art mini computer, despite, you know, a bunch of odds that they're facing. And it's been really good. I'm only a couple chapters in. Is that a book that you've heard of? I have not, but I, I definitely like the idea. And I, I like this theme of books that you're uh, searching out in the world. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited too. It, it seems like this new uh, niche of books that I'm really into. So to give a little more context for this book in case other folks are interested in it as well, or just, you know, curious and finding out if they would be interested in it. The book begins back in the late 1970s, and it focuses on a company called Data General. It's a company that's competing in the mini computer industry back when mini computers were about the size of a closet and cost up to about $25,000 a piece. I was going to say, what's a mini computer? Yeah. Like a laptop? No, something. Okay, a closet. Gotcha. Mini. A closet computer. Yeah. (laughs) A giant mini computer. That's the other part that's fun about these books is they often teach me about the history of computers in, in a way that I'm not familiar with. So sort of that transition of where you had like IBM that was creating these giant computers where typically like only a couple companies would have a computer at their disposal because they were so giant took a team to run. So this particular book is talking about as they're moving into the stage of mini computers and then eventually moving into like the laptops and home desktops. And But for this story, uh, it really ramps up as Data General, their biggest competitor, DEC, which is short for Digital Equipment Corporation, released a state-of-the-art 32-bit computer called VAX, V-A-X. So Data General is determined to keep up and they want to respond with their own or better version of the VAX computer. So they have two teams working on the project. They have one in North Carolina and one in Massachusetts. Essentially, the team in North Carolina is the one that's like the designated hitter. They're the ones really supposed to come out with the new machine to rival the VAX. But the story focuses on the team in Massachusetts because they're the ones that are the underdogs that are sort of like left behind to keep all the other computers running and improvements and supporting the company. But they're really determined they also want in on this competition. So that's as far as I've gotten. The importance of the book seems to be less about the progress of developing a computer Or let me reword that. It is very much about the progress of developing that computer. But this book really elevated the status of computer engineers from just tech geeks to bold, passionate like visionaries and provided insights into an industry that most people knew about but didn't really understand or know how to track progress. 
So it has like two neat factions to it. One is it really sort of changed how people understood like software engineers and what they do and sort of like the branding around them, but then also provides a lot of insight into like how they built that rival computer or did they? Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Spoiler. Yeah, I don't actually know. I'm pretty sure they did, but... (laughs) Fake spoiler. The best kind. (laughs) Given its history in nonfiction, so... So yeah, I'm sure I'll have more updates on it. But yeah, I I appreciate uh, folks that gave me some recommendations around books to read. Yeah, like I said, I I enjoy this theme that you're developing because most of what I see in pop culture around computers is uh, uh, nonsense. Uh, Like there are the ones that have become memes now and and are sort of funny, like, oh, this is a Unix computer. I know this and flying around in Jurassic Park or hackers as a... Man, what a what a movie that one was, Hacking the Gibson. Uh, so that's mostly what I see. And I don't see anyone actually getting computers right or talking about, I guess, because our work is actually somewhat mundane every day. This is what people think we do. Hackers, Uber Elite. What we actually do is Google stuff and kind of sit and drink coffee. But I, <laughs> it sounds like you have found an interesting intersection of actually novel and worth reading about and true or realistic, if nothing else. I like that novel slash educational theme in books. So I'm going to defer to your judgment on this. I'll admit I have not seen the movie Hackers. Do I need to watch the movie Hackers? Is this Um, important? I haven't seen Hackers in years, so I almost would be interested to re-up and see like even back when I knew it was ridiculous, but I would extra definitely know it's ridiculous now. I think it's also it's very much of an era and I, I don't know how it would hold up. I enjoy it, but I have sort of a nostalgic attachment to it. You do not have that because this would be the first time in your life watching it. But I don't know. I think it's worth it. Sure. Yeah. Why not? I'm interested. Straw poll of the audience. Uh, Folks who are listening to this, tweet at us and let us know. Should Steph watch Hackers? (laughs) Yeah, I'd be down for that. One, I take your advice, of course. But then two, if folks have opinions as to whether this is an important movie for me to watch or not. There is one movie that I saw not that long ago that I really enjoyed. I'm trying to think of the name, but it's a young boy and he's like at war with a computer and that's going to launch nuclear missiles. Does any of that ring a bell? Uh, War games, I want to say. Yes, that's it. War games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one I feel like was more representative because it had the giant ridiculous floppy disks that were like the size of the pizza. So yeah, that was that was a really good one. I enjoyed that one. I don't know that I've actually even seen that one. I'm just familiar with like, again, it's iconic and meme culture uh, built up around it. But uh, maybe we'll trade. You watch Hackers. I'll watch that one. And then we'll compare notes. This is like you having to watch Labyrinth, though, which I'm pretty sure you still haven't. So I'm, I'm going to be straight with you. I don't think I'm ever going to watch Labyrinth. Wow. I hope that doesn't okay. break your heart. <laughs> I mean, a little. It does, especially because I was led to believe that that was the thing you were going to do. But here we are. Ah, oh, crap. Yeah, you're right. I did. I think I did make that promise. I was going to watch it. Uh, okay. Well, we'll see. It just doesn't seem like my type of movie. You've renegotiated expectations here, and that's the most important thing. So, uh, yeah, moving forward, I'll just, you know, each new thing that you tell me, I'll just weigh it and say, like, maybe this is true. But that's fine. <laughs> Just know that at some point I'll confess and I'll be honest about the lie that I've told. Eventually consistent Steph truths. <laughs> Is that what <laughs> we found ourselves with? We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, HelloFresh. You can get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door with HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh lets you skip those trips to the grocery store and makes home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. When HelloFresh reached out to sponsor this episode, they kindly offered to send Chris and I a box so we could experience their service, which is great because now I can tell you how it went. 
So after whipping up their recipes in the kitchen and learning about the company, there are three areas where HelloFresh really impressed me. The first area is time. I really like to cook, but during the week, I could definitely use some help cooking up something quickly and healthy. My meal kit included two recipes, an Italian garden veggie soup and a black bean and poblano quesadilla. I found each recipe took about 10 minutes of prep, like chopping fresh veggies, and then another 30 to 40 minutes to cook. I also found the recipe cards really easy to follow with simple steps and helpful pictures to guide the cooking process. So next is taste. I definitely want to be efficient with my cooking time, but I also want delicious food that I can share with my family. Both recipes were really good, and I'd love to make them again. I'm also excited to check out their other recipes because they offer a ton of options, including 20-minute meals, low-calorie, vegetarian, and kid-friendly meals. So that brings me to my third item, sustainability. I tend to worry about how the packaging that's used for each recipe impacts the environment. So I was pleasantly surprised to learn that HelloFresh is the first global carbon-neutral meal kit company. Also, since HelloFresh offsets their operations, travel, and their shipping emissions, their carbon footprint is 25% lower than store-bought grocery-made meals. Pretty cool. So thank you again to HelloFresh for a fun experience. And if you're interested in delicious, easy-to-make meals, go to hellofresh.com forward slash bikeshed80 and use the code bikeshed80 to get $80 off, including free shipping. That's hellofresh.com forward slash bikeshed80 and then use our code bikeshed80 to get $80 off, including free shipping. Thanks again to HelloFresh for sponsoring today's episode of The Bike Shed. So pivoting just a bit away from my potentially duplicitous nature, I have a question for you. That's not duplicitous in any way, but a genuine question that I wanted to get your opinion on, and it's related to testing. So during the RSpec training course, towards the end of the course, someone asked a very thoughtful question, and I told them that I'd like to think about it for a little bit and get back to them, because I think it's a very interesting and sort of like challenging spot that they're in. So I'll share the question with you. So tests help us shorten the feedback loop and build confidence that our code works, but when running tests become super slow and incredibly difficult to write, mostly due to working with legacy code that's incredibly hard to test, and testing the code manually becomes the faster option, how can a team regain value in testing? So my interpretation on this is essentially when tests feel more like a barrier than a helpful guide, how can teams turn their test suite from a liability into an asset? And I'm really curious around your thoughts. And to provide some additional context around this that I mentioned briefly, this team is struggling with test coverage, mostly because they're working with a lot of legacy code that has been around for probably like a a decade. And so they have a lot of untested code, and a lot of that code is then very hard to test. So then as they are adding features or trying to work with the existing code, writing tests becomes very cumbersome and a difficult endeavor. Okay. Uh, yeah, this is a super easy question. So I'll just quickly answer it. And then we'll uh, <laughs> now this, uh, I think this gets at some of the core as to why testing is somewhat of a complicated idea, something that's resisted from time to time. What I like is that the conversation was framed in terms of two of the different benefits that we can get from testing, which is helps us get feedback as we're working and build trust in our systems. And I think both of those are really important. What this question feels like it's really hitting on is more on the feedback you're getting a ton of feedback as far as I can tell you, the the person who asked this question, you're getting a very strong voice of feedback that your system is too complex. Because in general, things that are very hard to test are actually very hard to understand. It's rare. It's like, oh, it's actually, it's a really simple piece of code. It's just so hard to test. Those two don't end up being true together in my mind that often. 
if it is very hard to test, almost always that is pointing at it is very complicated. And so as to the solutions, that's where things get difficult. I would probably have a couple of questions. Like, is your whole system this legacy quagmire that is very difficult to test? And if so, are you having to make changes to it over time? If both of those are true, like if most of the system is this legacy stuff and you're making changes to it regularly, then I would really invest in slow incremental changes to that system to make it more testable, to make it more reliable, to get it out of like if everyone thinks of that portion of the code base as legacy and and other, how do you start to wrap your arms around it and own it? There's a wonderful talk that I'm sure I've mentioned, I don't know, probably 10 times on the bike shed now, but it's Therapeutic Refactoring by Katrina Owen. In it, she talks about the idea of black box testing. So you have this gnarly piece of legacy code. How do you go about getting that under test coverage? So that is one idea that I would explore is like, how how do we actually go about wrangling some of this gnarlier code? But additionally, if there is a portion of the code that is rougher to work with, rougher to test, is there a way that we can encapsulate it a little bit more strongly? add more explicit sort of module boundaries or API interface boundaries such that we've now hidden away that stuff. It has a very clear API and now we can actually work against the fake or something like that such that we're still able to test the rest of our system. But that piece that has the complicated bits that is maybe easier to test manually, then maybe that's what we continue doing for that portion, but we're able to test the rest of the system in a more traditional, more automated fashion. I am really intrigued, though, by the question of like, it's easier to test manually than it is to test in an automated fashion. That's the sort of assertion that I would want to poke at a little bit and understand better. Like, what does it actually look like when we're testing this thing manually? And why is it that we can't automate that flow? Yeah, all of that resonates with me. And then just picking up on the last bit, you said talking about how testing manually is the more expedient approach, and if that's really true. And I suspect that that may be true in some cases, but even then, like you're likely only testing the cases that you know about and maybe the happy path cases. And then once you've tested it and you've gotten it to production, then the next person who comes along, they have to figure out how to test it. So I would be surprised if that's really true. It may feel true in the moment, but there are other times that that code's going to have to be manually tested that are then going to take longer than if you had probably invested up front when you have more context to test those high-level flows. So yeah, I'm, I'm also intrigued in understanding maybe some more concrete examples where it feels faster to test it manually, either through the UI or maybe it's running like a rake task or something and then verifying the results. The other part you said that I really liked is adding boundaries. So some of this code is really hard to test because it does too much. So as you're trying to test it, it just feels overwhelming to try to test all the things that this class or this method is doing. So let's say we're talking like a method that has maybe like 400 lines. So to understand what's happening in that method first and then be able to test everything is challenging. But I like the idea of adding boundaries in terms that you can identify one portion of what the code is doing and then try to extract that to another smaller testable class and then confirm that that class is being called in the correct way, either verifying the parameters, maybe just message verification, maybe you need to stub it out so then the rest of your method can continue to execute from based on a return value. I think that's incredibly useful as a way to slowly start to refactor some of your code into more testable pieces. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, ExpressVPN. So we all know how VPN protects your privacy and security online, right? So what's the best way to make sure that 100% of your data is encrypted so that no one can get a hold of your data? 
You guessed it, ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN creates a secure tunnel between all your devices and the internet so that everything you do online is encrypted. It reroutes your connection through a secure server, which blocks others from seeing everything that you do online. All they can see is that you're connected to an ExpressVPN server, but nothing beyond that. And it's not just for your phone or computer. ExpressVPN works on all your devices. It works on your tablets, smart TVs, and even your router, so your entire family stays protected. Plus, ExpressVPN is simple to use. Just open up the app, tap one button to connect, and that's it. Your data is your business, so protect it at expressvpn.com forward slash bike shed. Visit expressvpn.com forward slash bike shed to get three extra months of ExpressVPN protection for free. That's express, E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com forward slash bike shed to learn more. And thank you again to ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's episode of the Bike Shed. I do want to circle back and touch on something that you mentioned earlier about writing the test. And then that's something that I think you said you mentioned investing in, but I'm curious in terms of like what that truly looks like for the team. Is it sort of like an ownership upfront of acknowledging that yes, testing is hard, but it's something we're committed to and saying that feature development will slow down as we add tests. Like how do you balance that trade-off between we are committed to tests. We know this is challenging. It's going to take more time, but it's also important that we still ship frequently How do you find that right balance? Uh, Yeah, again, another super easy question right up the middle of software development at the intersection of technology and people. I think I've shared this on other bike sheds, but one of the things that I've really tried to do over time is move from sort of admonishing people or saying you must do this because it is the correct thing because it is a quote unquote best practice or anything like that and try and anchor conversations and current pain points around the actual workflow and the software that we're developing. So is it that we're not getting feedback as we're developing? You know, we make a change, but then we have to push it up to CI and CI takes 25 minutes and we don't even know if our tests are working at all. That's a particular pain point and I'd, you know, focus the conversation around that. Or is it that we're seeing a lot of regressions? We're pushing code to production and it's breaking. And the only way we know if it's working at all is by pushing it to production because we don't trust staging and et cetera, et cetera. So there are all these different ways that things can manifest. Another being our velocity is just much lower than we would want it to be. That's one that can have a bunch of upstream causes. So I would want to take a look at that and say, like, what do we think is happening here? Are we opening giant PRs and then they're really difficult to merge in? Okay, maybe that's something we can look at. Are we struggling to scope work? Are we fighting against callbacks in Active Record and finding that you know lots of things are creeping in? But I, again, I would try and anchor the conversation in the current pains as opposed to saying, we're going to take a hit, everybody, but just trust me, it's the right thing. That just trust me needs to be, and this is the outcome that we should expect, and here is how we will collectively make sure that ends up being true. Yeah, all of that. Like you said, very easy question. <laughs> but all of that sounds really good to me. Like you said, there there always has to be like a balance between like that trust me, but here's the qualification around like, what do we actually expect? So you don't fall back into that whole just trust me stage, but people actually feel like it's something that the whole group has bought into and sort of understands the direction of where you're headed and the value that you're going to derive from that investment. There's possibly a nested question in here, or at least I'm going to invent one of how do you measure the work that we're doing? How do you determine like, is velocity the thing that we're looking at? Or is it bug counts? Or is it, you know, what do we do? And anytime we create a metric, then it pretty quickly stops being a good metric. 
I feel like I come back to this often, but the idea of good arts law uh, or good hearts law, I don't actually know how to pronounce it, but the idea that once you pick a measure, it ceases to become a useful measure because then people will game it and not necessarily even purposefully, but it's just the natural tendency of humans to optimize towards a thing that we've named. But if we suddenly say like PRs, we want to see as many PRs as possible and move them through like a higher PR count. You're going to sort of shift the work around that. And I hate to say it, but it really ends up being one of those more amorphous, like, I know what a high functioning team looks like. You know, we're moving code regularly. Information is shared between the different members of the team. We have a low bug count. We have confidence in the software that we're building. We're able to adapt to changes as they come in relatively easily and not suddenly cry when we have to have two profiles instead of one. Those are sort of the rough ideas, but they're unfortunately very loose and I wish I could say like, oh, this is the metric. It's this one number. If you just measure, then we're great. But I have not seen that. And so it does become difficult and more of sort of a trust human thing to figure out how do we make sure we're actually driving towards the outcomes that we want. I sort of enumerated my off the top list, but I'm wondering in your mind, what does a high functioning team look like? like? I think we started this conversation around tests, but overall, what does it look like when a team is just gelling and getting the work done? And what are sort of the, the standout elements there? I think for me, it comes down to a couple key points. One of them is the trust that you have in each other. I think that's often very apparent within teams as to whether they can hand off work to each other, they can collaborate well with each other. The other ones is a high level of autonomy. So you feel that you have that empowerment to make decisions and reach out to others as well to collaborate where you're not always waiting on someone to give you direction, but you know that you can also pursue to like make the team process company better. So that's uh, two. So we have trust, empowerment, and like autonomy. And then for, I feel like these things always come in three. So for a third one, I'm going to say output for like the team's ability to produce, because I feel like that's an important just sort of like raw measurement of what are you able to produce based on the fact that you have this trust and sort of autonomy on your team. Those are my three high level ones that I have in mind. It's interesting, as you said that there's a, a parallel to a book that I have read, which is not specific to software, but is Daniel Pink's Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. And in it, the sort of core, again, the rule of three. So apparently that's the way it goes. But it's autonomy, mastery, and purpose, I believe, are the three, which I think if you kind of shift and rotate and squint a little, it's almost the same three that you just named, but specific <laughs> to software in a certain way. But yeah, that totally makes sense. And I don't know if there's a good way to tie that back into the testing question, but the testing question, I think it's hard to answer in the abstract. And I think you have to get to these subtler, but bigger picture sort of things, because you shouldn't write tests just because we tell you to. That's definitely not the question. So why should we write tests? Like what's good look like? And then you can start to drive towards that. Sure. Well, and, and for this specific case, since I'm using this team as a reference for this question, they are very much bought into the idea of test. Like it is something that they understand the value of and want to have more of, but they are just in that painful place of where adding tests is incredibly difficult and they're incredibly slow. So it just comes back to the how do I make this shift to where my tests feel more valuable and easy to write into a more pleasant space? And so I think all the suggestions that you made earlier are incredibly helpful around the ideas of use black box testing and also adding boundaries. 
Speaking of black box testing, one of the segments that we did, we had to sort of like a live coding session that was adding tests to legacy code. So we chose a particular method that had a number of like conditionals in it and wanted to add test coverage to this untested method. So it was a demonstration of like, if I were approaching this code, how would I add test to it? Because I really wanted to understand also from their perspective, what's it like to encounter this? What's it like to work in their application? And so we had this mob programming session because they were going to help me along the way since they're more familiar with the code than I am. And we use black box testing as a strategy there where I would just test a method without any parameters because it had default parameters. It's sort of like that high level, like what's the basic functionality that you do and what do you give me in return? And this one fit that strategy very well because it was generating HTML that was then being inserted into a view. So I could just execute that method, grab what it gave me back and throw that into a test and say, okay, given this code path, this is what you give me back. So documenting the high level And then we could move into more like unit level tasks because we started in like a view spec space to then confirm what was happening in the view to document that and then moved into unit tests to say, okay, now let's really get into like the conditionals and start to understand from there. Like when we change the params, what types of values we get back. So I found the black box testing to be incredibly helpful as we are driving through that particular scenario. I think it is that space where they recognize that it is it is hard to add tests, but they're very invested in it. And it's just, what does that incremental progress look like? But yeah, I think it's a challenging space that they're in, but I appreciate you sharing your thoughts on how you would approach like tackling this sort of problem and how you would make incremental progress. Yeah, always happy to go on those sort of adventures, especially when the the small question can lead to the bigger conversations around how we build software. So yeah, my pleasure. Cool. On that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it helps other people find the show. If you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.